Have you ever been able to get into a, a place where the only way you can get in there is you know somebody who knows somebody who's able to get you there, that they're important enough to get you into this place? That It could be like a, like a sporting event where you, you go into a special booth where only the privileged people can sit, or it could be like a celebrity's um, house or some kind of event that you can only get there if you know somebody who's important enough to get you there. What if you had offended that person who was going to go with you? And that endangers your opportunity to get in that place. In today's text in Exodus, we'll see how the reason that Israel is going to be able to get into the promised land of Canaan is that God favors Moses. He's given grace to Moses, their mediator. And because he favors Moses, he's even going to go with them, even though that they had, at first he says he's not going to go with them. So we'll, we'll see what's going on with this, and we'll uh, start with, Verse 1 through 3, where we see that God tells Moses to lead the people into the promised land. Uh, the good news is they can still go to the promised land. That he hasn't just said, hey, you can't go. And the reason, if you haven't been here in the past, we saw that a few weeks ago that they, um, they, they devised a golden calf to worship, and that got God angry because he said not to do that. So uh, he, he could have just said, hey, you're done, but he's merciful, and he continues to let them go to the promised land. So that's the good news. The bad news is he's not going to go with them. And back in uh, earlier passages, God had said this angel that is going to go with them, he's, he, called them, he called this angel my angel in the past, and now he's referring it to an angel. So it seems like he's downgraded the angelic uh, help. So it's no longer going to be like my angel who represents me. It's just a rank-and-file angel, and so that's also a sad thing for them the land they're going to is still going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. That just means it's going to be a rich land, so it's going to be a good place for them to go. And uh, God said they're going to make a dwelling place, a portable sanctuary for him called the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just a word that means tent, so they were going to do that. And now, if God's not going to go, not going to go with them, it, it means the plans for the tabernacle is on hold because that was going to be God's dwelling place among them. Right in the middle of the people was going to be the tabernacle. God tells them it wouldn't be safe for him to go with them because of their problem with stiff necks. So they had stiff necks, meaning they're stubborn, they're, they're hard to deal with, they're, they're uh, um, uncooperative, they're rebellious. So God can't go with them that way because he's, if they do that, he's going to destroy them. So he's really being pretty merciful to them. Hey, if I go with you, I might destroy you, so I'm not going to go. So even though it's sad, it's also God's mercy that he's not going to go with them because they're so prone to, to making God angry. The Israelites are desperate to have God go with them. And what's ironic about that is that they, they thought uh, by, by making a calf of gold, they, they made a, a bull or a calf out of gold, that brought, them, that, that brought God up close to them. And in doing that, it actually drove God away from them. So that, that's what happens. Instead of, of making um, God closer to them, the symbol of his presence is now not going to go with them at all. This is what happens when we worship other gods, especially gods that we can see or touch. Rather than bringing us closer to God, our idols take us further away from God. Martin Luther, 16th century reformer, said this. He said, whatever man loves, that is his God. For he carries it in his heart. He goes, about it with, he goes about with it night and day. He sleeps and wakes with it, be what it may, wealth or self, pleasure or renowned. 
So the, the issue we, we need to determine is, we, do we have something in our hearts that, that pushes God out, marginalizes God in our lives, that keeps him out of our lives? Um, when we carry other things around with us, pursuing them day and night, thinking about them all the time, there's no room left for God. So the question we need to ask is, what are you pursuing in your life that leaves no room for God because it dominates your thoughts, your time, and your life revolves around it? And we think when we have those things that they, they bring us closer to God or they give us more access to things that we, that we think are like God in our lives, but they actually push God away, and they also don't, don't fulfill the promise they offer. We see then in verses 4 to 6 that the people mourn when God says he won't go with them since they, they are stiff-necked. How would you have responded to the news that God isn't going? You might think, well, I, I, would, be upset, I would be upset too. But really, what's going on here? What's going on is, is God is offering the Israelites to bless them without having a relationship with them. But actually, that's what, what a lot of people want. A lot of people want God without the relationship. They, they, they want God to solve their problems, to take care of the, the tough things in their lives, but they really don't want God himself. Most people want God to help them overcome difficulties and obstacles they're facing in life, and they want to reach a promised land, so to speak. People, they think, by, if I make a decision for Jesus, I'll go to heaven, but they're, right now they're not living with God at all. God is, is a stranger to them. He's outside their lives. So they, um, they're happy to receive God's gifts, but they don't really want God himself, like Santa Claus. You don't need to have a personal relationship with Santa Claus for him to give you gifts. How, how often do people say to you, hey, can I tell you how, how to have a personal relationship with Santa Claus? Santa just delivers the gifts. You don't need to know him. And that's how Israel is with God or could be with God. But actually, they're very, they're very sad that God's not going to go with them. So they're feeling the pain now. Why do they not put on their, their jewelry? Why, why did they take their ornaments off? Because in the ancient Near East, you, you didn't wear ornaments or, or fancy things when you're mourning because that, that would show you're really not mourning. So to mourn, don't wear your jewelry. Take your ornaments off. So they removed that all. So the question is, we need to ask ourselves, what's more valuable to us, God or his gifts? Would I be content to, if God gave me all the good stuff I wanted and didn't give him my, himself, didn't give me himself? God wants to have a close relationship with us, so we need him, and he's good. He gives us good gifts. We don't uh, want to, to have the attitude that, God, just give me the good stuff. I don't, I don't want you. Then in verses 7 through 11, we see that the Lord speaks to Moses in a tent of meeting, face to face, is what it says. Because of the sin of the people, Moses meets with, with the Lord outside the, um, the, the camp, so, what he so far granted them was a more distant presence. He did not abandon them utterly, in contrast to the elaborate tabernacle uh, that they were going to build one day that had more of the signs of his presence. Right now, they just have this tent of meetings outside the camp. It's a plain old tent outside the camp because he, he doesn't, he's, he's not giving them close access to him. Sometimes when you're reading in, in the Old Testament, so this gets confusing, sometimes it refers to the tabernacle as a tent of meeting. But this is not the tabernacle. 
Now, with the tent of meeting that is here, um, outside the camp, but still within sight of it, they could not fail to see that every time Moses goes into this tent, God comes down in his pillar of cloud. God's glory comes down, and, and Moses is able to talk with him. Though the tent of meeting was far off from the camp, it was less far off than the top of Mount Sinai. So what they used to just not know was going on at all, they can at least see now, hey, this Moses really is talking to God for us. So he's really there for us, talking to God on our behalf. So they get to see that. God descends in the cloud and speaks to Moses. When the people saw this, they, they would rise up and worship. They recognized this was God speaking to their mediator, Moses. Even though they were mourning the loss of God's presence to go with them, they knew that, that through his talks with Moses, God had not utterly rejected them. It says God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Well, later on in verse 20, it says that if you, you can't see God's face and live, because if you see God's face, it's too much. You can't look direct, directly at God's glory because it'll kill you. So what, what does this mean? Well, it's an idiom. So this is our English lesson. What, what is an idiom? An idiom is a figure of speech where the words don't mean, you don't take them literally. They mean something else. So like when we say um, you can't judge a book by its cover, we're not talking about judging books. We're talking about you can't look at an outside, the outside situation and know what's going on. Or when beating around the bush, you're not talking about literally going out with a stick and beating around the bush. You're talking about just not getting direct, directly talking to somebody. So that's an idiom. Face-to-face doesn't mean you're seeing God's face directly. It means you have an intimate, close relationship with him. Soon, God will go ahead with his plans for the tabernacle. So that's good. And by the end of Exodus, he will come down to dwell with the people in glory, which will be in the middle of the camp at that time. So the tabernacle will be there. God will be with his people. God's constantly seeking. When you, when you read the Bible, you need to see that throughout the whole Bible, God is, desires a close relationship with his people. If, if you've not seen that in the Bible, you're not reading the Bible Correctly, the Bible makes it very clear that God wants to be close with, with every person. So do you want that? Do you want a close relationship with God? He's earnestly seeking that with you. God wants to be close to us. And we see that, that um, in verse 11, that Joshua wants to remain where God has been revealing himself. So Joshua gets it. He says, hey, I, I just want to, I want to be where God's meeting Moses. I want to be close to God. So he's, he's got the right idea. In verses 12 to 13, Moses is pleading with the Lord, saying that he has commanded him to bring this people up to the land. But he hasn't told them who this angel is going to be with him. So he, he has said to him that he knows him by name, but he has found, and that he has found favor, or literally grace, in his sight. To say that he knows him by name means more than he knows his name is Moses because he knows that of everybody on the earth. He knows every person on the planet that way, but he means he knows Moses intimately. Moses reminds God that he said, Moses found grace in, his, in God's sight. Moses says, if it is true that I found grace in your sight, then show me your ways that I may find even more grace in your sight. I want to know you more. The more I know you, 
the more I will find favor in your sight, he says. God reveals himself as gracious. As Moses knows him more, he gets more grace. And also, consider that Israel is your people. So Moses isn't content just to get God's grace for himself. He's got to share it. And so if you've, if you've had God's grace in your life, you can't keep it to yourself. You've got to share it. And that's, that's a good sign that you have God's grace in your life because you're never going to just hoard it and just say, hey, I don't care about other people. Moses just really wants God's grace upon all the people. God says in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God makes, so what he's, he's, what he's really doing, he's restoring his, his original promise to go with him into the land. He says, my presence will go with you. It's clearly, clearly a huge gain for Israel. God fully restores his original promise to them to bring Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. Now Israel would have the, the presence of God in the sense of what the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for presence is, is face. So God's face going with them, meaning he's, he's there personally with them. It's not, they, they don't want God to go up them, with them like the force. They want God to go with them like the face. Not the force, but the face. Personal, not just a power, impersonal, but a personal presence with us. So that's God's, what he's promising to do. The accompanying promise, I will give you rest, just speaks of getting into the promised land where they will uh, not, they'll, they'll, they'll have their full inheritance here. They will enjoy their time with God in the land. It's so important to Moses that God's presence goes with them that even after God says he's going to go with them, he says, if your presence doesn't go with us, just leave us here. Because if you don't, if you don't go with us, how will it be known that I and your people have found grace or favor in your sight? Only by your going with us shall we be distinct from every other people on earth. Only if you go with us shall it be known that, you, that we are your covenant people. So in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, God makes it clear that there was nothing about Israel that favored them. So what Moses writes there in Deuteronomy 7 is, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house, house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 9, God says, it's not because you were righteous, because you were really stubborn and rebellious. So the only way that, that, that their status as God's holy people can be seen and known is if God himself goes with them into the promised land. It won't be because they just tell people, hey, we're God's chosen people, and, or they have t-shirts that say, Hey, we're God's chosen people. It's totally God's presence with them. So what God is promising to do to, to, to go in the midst of the people, God is agreeing to go ahead with the plans for the tabernacle because there he'll be able to dwell in the midst of his people again. 
So how does this apply to us? Well, in John 1.14, you see that Jesus has said, or John writes about Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word, many of you know this, is literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He, he, he put on human flesh and he pitched his tent among us. And we beheld his glory. We, we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us who the word was in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. With Jesus no longer here, we are still left with the question, what makes God's people distinct from others today? Is being in a church building? Is being in a church building like, like that, that makes you different than people, other people? In John 14, Jesus is promising his disciples that after he leaves this world through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he will send the Holy Spirit who will be with them forever. He said that even now he is with you and will be in you. And he said that through the Spirit, both he and the Father would come dwell with them. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell with us through the Holy Spirit. And this will we see in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Um, you are only a Christian if the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It says in Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh only, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If, if to be a believer in Christ means you have the Holy Spirit in you, how can that not change your life? How can you possibly have God's Holy Spirit in you if you think, speak, and act just like people who don't have God's Spirit? It's impossible. If you can know a tree by its fruit, you ought to be able to see the fruit of the Spirit in, in their lives, the lives of people who have the Holy Spirit. So Galatians 5, 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The reality that God dwells with us, in us, and among us through his Spirit is not only true as individuals, but it's true of us corporately. Uh, only by the dwelling of the, of the Spirit of God will Christ's church be distinct from the world. Only by God's Spirit will, will, will we be able to display the glory and grace and truth of Jesus Christ to the world. Ephesians 2, 21, 22. In Christ we are being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. How is that happening? It's not because of anything we do. It's the Holy Spirit constructing us that way. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. The main role of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Christ and to empower us, our witness and service to him. So... We make much of Jesus Christ. The more you focus on Christ, the more of the Spirit is acting and working to magnify his name. In our teaching and how we pray, we ask God to do what only he can do through his Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit, only the Spirit can open our hearts to Christ. It's not only, there's no human means by, that open our hearts to Jesus Christ. We're responsible to tell people about Jesus, but only the Spirit can open our hearts to, to see and, and, and embrace him. It's the presence and work of the Holy Spirit that makes us distinct, that empowers God's Word. In verses 17 and 18, 
we see that God says he will do all this, his presence will go with them into the land because Moses has found favor or grace in his sight and knows him by name. God agrees to go with Israel because Moses has found favor with God. The Israelites were saved by the favor of God on their mediator. The grace and love that God elected to show Moses also extends to them. God did this so that we would see the only way we could be saved. We cannot be saved by anything we do. You cannot be saved by just being a good person or doing the best you can. You can't be saved by just being a nice guy or a nice girl or being religious. The only way you can possibly be saved is by the, God, the grace of God and the favor that he has on, on our mediator, Jesus Christ. Our salvation depends on the pleasure God takes in our mediator. God's uh, favor rests. He delights in Jesus, his son. Not only that, but, but also his son became our substitute, the acceptable sacrifice to bear God's just punishment of our sins. So it's only through Jesus. If you've never received Jesus by faith, that's the only way you can be saved is through Jesus. You, you can't do it on your own. There's nothing you can do to win God's favor. You can only receive it by, by his grace. So in one sense, Moses is like Jesus in that he's the mediator that because God favors Moses, Israel gets to go to the land. But in another sense, he's not like, not like Jesus because the only reason that God favors Moses is, is by grace. Moses is a sinful human being. He can't merit God's favor any more than you and I can. So Jesus totally merits God's favor because he is fully pleasing to God. He never sinned ever. He's perfect. Moses wasn't that. So Moses shows us what Jesus is like, but he's different than Jesus in that way. Why does Moses at this point ask God to show him his glory? Verse 18, show me your glory. Why does he ask him that? Moses realizes that only if God goes with Israel will they be able to enter the land as, as his holy people, distinct from the, the nations. He also realizes that since Israel is stiff-necked, that it is only as God has favored Moses, him, as a mediator, that, that he has agreed to let them go in with him. He believes that the more he can know of, of God, the more he will be able to lead God's people in, in his favor by God's grace. It's like he said back in verse 13, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. So the more I see of you, the more I know of you, the more grace I get, the more he reveals of his name is gracious, which God does, the more his people will know him, trust in him for more grace. Like it says in John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory one full of grace and truth. And in verse 16 of John chapter 1, it says, And we, of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So Jesus just continues to overflow grace into our lives. This is what Moses wants from God. He wants to see his glory. Now Moses thinks what he really wants to see is God's amazing, uh, fiery presence like like he did on top of the mountain. But God answers, I will make all my goodness come before you. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. What does he mean by that? He says, I will, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, which is Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Moses has asked God to show him his glory. He wants to see more of God's 
radiant, fiery glory like on the mountain. But God says, no, I'm going to show you my goodness. I'll proclaim to you my name, Yahweh, which comes from the verb I am or I will be. So the primary way God is, is going to show Moses' glory is not visually, but through his words. And that's, that's how we see God's glory today. We don't see it visually so much. We see it through his words. As, and what the Lord, Yahweh, will, will proclaim to Moses is his name. What he is known for, his, his goodness, is displayed in, in his sovereign mercy. That's what he means when he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom, to whom I will show mercy. This means that God is never obligated to show mercy, ever, to a sinful person. He is free to be gracious and merciful as it pleases him to do that. And so he is free to be amazingly generous with his mercy. And he is. He's an amazingly generous God with his mercy. The late R.C. Sproul said this, As soon as we think God owes us mercy, we're not any longer talking about mercy. But in proclaiming to you and showing you the goodness of my glory, God says in verse 20, You cannot see my face, for humans who see me unfiltered shall die. And Moses spoke to him face to face in terms of intimacy, but he never got a direct look at God's face. And God doesn't really have a face. So it's his glory that he, he, a direct look at his full glory that he's talking about. God says if Moses sees God's face, he's toast. Moses doesn't want to be toast. God is responding to Moses' request to see his glory. What he means here is you can't see my, my face, see me in my fullness. You can't endure a direct, full gaze on my face and live. God, God's consolation for Moses in verse 21 is that God will put him in the cleft or crevice of a rock and cover him with his hand as he goes by. Then he will take away his hand and Moses will see his back. In the same way, we do not see much of a person if we see their back. So, like, if, if Greg comes up here and says, hey, if I say, Greg, I want to see your face, he says, you can't look at my face because you're going to freak out. So if Greg walks away and I just see his back, I know Greg well enough, okay, I know that's his back, but, but I don't see his face, so I'm, I'm spared the shocking look. <laughs> this is what God is saying to Moses. He's moving away from him, and he could, he could tell it's God, but he doesn't see God's, God directly. When he says, I'll cover you with my hand and remove my hand, that doesn't mean that God is a very large human-shaped being with a big hand that he covers him up with. That's, uh, okay, here, here you go. Here's another big gram- grammarian word for the day, anthropomorphism. That's an anthropomorphism. You say, wow, what in the world is that? Well, it's a form of speech that refers human, that describes human characteristics to non-human beings. So you're, you, the only way we can think of God is in human terms, even though he's not like a man. So he doesn't have a big hand, doesn't have a big face, but he talks about these things because they, they refer to things he, he does that are like human hands and human faces. So it's a comforting thing for God to cover Moses as he's in the crevice because it protects him from his, his 
the direct look of his glory. But God doesn't have a big hand and doesn't have a big face. The protection God affords is protection from the greatness of his own glory. In the Bible, we see God working out a way of salvation that allows us to know him without being destroyed. We need this protection because we can't handle direct looking at God. But because of his absolute perfection, we can't be in his presence. So the glory of God is more than any mortal can bear. Yet now that Jesus has come, we're privileged to see more of God's glory than Moses did. But we don't see it with our eyes. We, see, we hear it with our ears in the gospel. One of the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. Just show us God, and we'll, we'll be okay. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you that you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And later on, when they reflected on back to John 1, 14, they realized we've been seeing God all along. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We, we saw his glory, glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the only human being in the universe who has seen God directly. He's the only one who's been in God's presence because he, was, he wasn't just a human. When he came to earth, he added humanity to his being God. In fact, not only has Jesus seen the full glory of God, he himself shares the full glory of God. When Jesus was praying to the Father as he was about to finish his, his mission that he came to accomplish, he asked this of his Father. He said in John seventeen five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So whereas Moses asked God to show him his glory so he could know more about him and have more favor in God's sight to lead people into the promised land, um, Jesus had the glory of God. Jesus, when he died on the cross and rose again, he also added to God's, he added a new phase to God's glory, a new, new add-on to God's glory, was the glory of, his, of the salvation that he could give to us. So this is what we see in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6. We can see and be saved by the glory of God now rather than killed by it. So in, John, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, And for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, God says, let there be light. God speaks light into our lives. He just speaks it, and we, we see the glory of God in Christ. It's, it's a miracle that only God can do. It's not, don't search for your inner light. We hear that sometimes. Look for your inner light and just fan it in flame. No, we need an outer light that comes from God directly through the gospel, the glory of Christ. Now that God has revealed the glory of Jesus Christ and in his gospel, as we focus on, on the gospel-centered truth of Scripture, we are transformed to reflect his glory. We see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Where do we see that? We see it in Jesus as he's presented in the Scriptures. We see it in the gospel. Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we are on our journey to the promised land, to new heavens, new earth. We can only get there if Jesus prepares us and takes us there. He is with us now through the Spirit. And one day, 
he will come for us. If this is our hope, we will purify himself, ourselves as he is pure. This is what it says in, in 1 John 2, 3, 2-3. to Right now, if, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you've recognized you cannot save yourself, and you've put your trust in him, you're a child of God. That's how you get birthed into the kingdom. You say, God, I can't save myself. I need you to save me through Jesus. And he, he will make you his child. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be is not yet appeared. We don't know what we're going to look like. We don't know how we're going to be changed. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So if you have that hope in Jesus, you will purify yourself. You will be like a bride preparing for the wedding. You will just continue to cast aside sin by God's grace. Do you long to see the glory of God in Jesus? Well, the Sunday school answer is yes. But does that mean anything to you? Do you, does it seem too kind of like out there to know? I, yeah, I know I should, but I don't, it doesn't seem very real to me. Well, the only way you can make it real to you is to continue to look at Jesus in the Gospels, look at Jesus as he's presented in the New Testament, and you pray about him, you sing of him, you, you focus on him, like you do, like when you're a kid and you have a hero who's a superhero or a sports hero, and you kind of model your life after him, and you continue to look, you, you, you continue to follow his every move, and you read about him all the time, and so you, you become like this hero. Well, Jesus, you focus on him, and he transforms you more and more into his likeness. And you want to see him. You want to be with him. One day we will literally be able to see Jesus. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead in a glorious body, and we'll see the glory of God that way. This says in 1 Corinthians three twelve. One day we will see him face to face. In the heart of every believer, there's a yearning. You have it. You, you do have it, that yearning to see, to see God, see this prom- to see this promise fulfilled. Even though it's far beyond our comprehension, we know that there will still be more for us to see. We long to gaze upon the beautiful face of Jesus Christ. One way we, where you see Jesus is taking the communion meal together. We see the glory of Jesus in that because... In his death and in his resurrection, that's where God's glory was accomplished. That's how God is glorified in saving us. Jesus gave us his body. He took on a human body so he could live for us and die for us. That's what this bread represents in the cup. His blood shed for us to pay the penalty for our sins and to rescue us from all of our unrighteousness. Forgiveness of sins and purification of sins. So we take this, this meal together again and again and again because we need to keep you remembering Jesus, and this is where we see his glory performed. So if you have confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're trusting in him, then this meal is for you. If, you're not, if you have not yet done that, then talk to or one people that's going to be up here to pray with you, either before, during, or after the service, during or after the service. There will be people here to pray for you before as well, if you can take yourself back there. Um, just come up, dip the bread in the cup and go back to your seats and we'll and just take them as you're ready but in your hearts just continue to seek Jesus cleansing blood trusting in him we'll pray and prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper together Father we thank you for showing us the glory of you 
in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has come down to this earth, taken on, covered, covered his glory that we couldn't see without being killed with human flesh so he could live among us and be a servant, so he could pay the price for us, live in our place, obey in our stead, and be raised up again after he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That is where we see your glory the most brightly in this age until he returns, is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is now at your right hand, back with the glory he had originally, and now with the glory of salvation accomplished to rescue us from sin, death, and devil and give us life in him. So thank you, Father, that you have given us such a glorious, powerful Savior to rescue us, to bring us surely into the, the promised land of, your, of the new heavens and new earth. We long for that day when we'll be able to see you face to face, Father. Thank you so much for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.